0: Future Proof with Jonathan McRae.
1: Proudly supported by Science Foundation Ireland. on News Talk.
0: Hello and welcome to Future Proof the podcast. This is the show where we take a closer look at the world around us. I'm Jonathan McRae. Coming up on this week's episode, we're going to be talking about jumbos, these weird sort of Jupiter-sized twin planets that do not orbit a star. It has scientists very excited at the European Space Agency. We'll be speaking to Mark McCochran uh, all about where they came from, how they were found, and what does it mean about how we understand planetary and stellar formation. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can email us at scienceatnewstalk.com or you can tweet us. We're at Newstalk Science. We get to all of those at the end of the podcast. First though, as always, time to look back at the week's science news. We're joined by Dr. Oren Kennedy from RCSI and from Chagask, Laura Healy. Our first story, Oren, has to do with the malaria
2: vaccine. Yes, so this uh, this isn't a paper in the normal sense that we normally go over here. It's kind of in much bigger than that, in fact. It's about the rollout of a new vaccine. Malaria, and it's a story that's kind of, kind of amazing and a little bit disappointing in equal measure. And the reason is that there's a there's been a sort of another, yet another amazing technical scientific advancements in in vaccine design and manufacture, but the sort of logistics and human factors uh, involved in um, in malaria and especially in around the region in Africa mean that it's probably not going to end the problem anytime soon. So just to take a, a step back for a second, malaria, as most people know, it's a massive, massive problem. Doesn't get the attention that it it deserves in some ways. Uh, it infects millions of people every year and kills five to six hundred thousand mostly children mostly in africa and the rates have actually increased in recent years so uh, a new vaccine emerged in 2021 that was called RTSS, and the trade name was Mosquirix, made by GSK. And this was like a colossal feat, really, and it was kind of overshadowed by the other vaccine uh, rollout program that was happening at the time that everyone will remember. Um, but in some ways, th- that was actually kind of a bigger breakthrough in that malaria has been around and been so, such a tenacious problem for so long. It's been around for thousands of years, really. Anyway, that new vaccine in 2021, we'll call that Vax1, had an efficacy of about 40%, and it required three shots. It was a little bit expensive and the supply couldn't keep up with demand for those reasons. Now, the, this most recent story is about another vaccine. So this is a new vaccine for malaria. It's called or 21 Matrix M. It's developed out of Oxford and the Serum Institute in India. And it's sort of the same base technology as the first one, but they've they've done more than tweak it, but they've made some changes to it. And they actually used an adjuvant. That's one of the things that sort of boosts a vaccine's um, effectiveness. Uh, an adjuvant similar to one um, that's in the Novavax Covid nineteen, So they learned from the COVID-19 vaccine, basically. But this new malaria vaccine is much more potent. It's much cheaper to make. And so it's more likely to meet the demand. So um, and this brings the efficacy over the 75 percent mark, which is something that the WHO has sort of sought and really wants to have for a new malaria vaccine. So it's, it's, it's hit that mark. Uh, wow. However, on the downside, it's four shots it's going to be hard to get to everybody so we kind of have to see how it goes but it's you know it's um it's a massive advancement really it's a great news story it's probably not going to have a massive impact anytime soon but overall a fantastic uh, story in the fight against malaria
0: why will it not have an impact uh, i mean it's an a, a vaccine for a deadly disease why do we not think it's going to have a big uh, effect
2: yeah i think this just comes down to that so the cohort of people the fact that it's four shots you know the 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 populations in sub-saharan africa you know they find it hard to 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 get to their appointments, simple things like that. You know, there is some variation, of course, in the strains of malaria as well. But I think it's mostly logistics and human factors that they, um, that they, uh, that they think will limit this, the impact of this. You know, and it's all—it's always hard. It seems to have always been hard to get wins in the in the fight against malaria. You know, I mean, the Bill uh, Melinda Gates Foundation, for example, they put a lot of money and effort into that first vaccine, and then they just sort of they sort of pulled out of that and they started focusing more on malaria nets and things like that because like the practical side of the fight against malaria seems to be much bigger than in most other sort of um, uh, big disease cases like this.
0: Right. Uh, Laura, our second story has to do with glowing mammals. What is this about?
1: Yeah, so not something we might think of when we think of bioluminescent uh, animals, which is something I'm sure we all do quite regularly. But if we do think about uh, glowing animals, we might picture that scary anglerfish from Finding Nemo, you know, that was in the deep dark uh, ocean and using a light to try and lure some prey into its mouth but this research um, coming from Australia found that mammals actually have a form of bioluminescence called fluorescence Um, so what these guys did to find this out was they organised a night at the museum in Western Australian Natural History Museum with... What? What? Yeah, (laughs) they got uh, some crime scene cameras in place, uh, some UV lights and hundreds of dead mammals. Um, So it's like the perfect setting for a kid's scary movie. Um, And what they did was they were shining this UV light on uh, these hundreds of dead animals and um, they started taking pictures like you would at a crime scene. And what they were shocked to find out is that every single animal had some form of of uh, fluorescence, so this has never been recorded before. Previously, we knew about a couple of mammal species, like um, rabbits, that would um, glow um, under flure- uh, with uh, through fluorescence, but this was the first time that we got. a kind of a bigger scope of um, animals so all 125 species of mammals that they photographed had um, some form of fluorescence. Um, Whether it was on their skin or fur some animals only it showed up on their claws and um, in the case of the echidna who are covered in spines, all of their spines were glowing um, in this kind of greeny colour. What? Yeah, I know. And you should um look at the, the Guardian article and have a look at the photographs because um it really gives a whole new perspective to these, you know, these animals that we just see in like normal color, they're like literally glowing um uh, through this study. Um but the the researchers here are left with more questions than they are answers because they can't pinpoint any biological function for this. Like, you know, there's very little UV as the day goes on, um, as the day gets darker, there there's no reason that we would ever see these animals glowing. Um, you know, except, you know, we know, we see each other, uh, our teeth glowing in, you know, nightclubs, things like that. But they can't think of why mammals would actually have this, um, possess this ability. Um, So they think it's just a biological quirk. One of the animals that they photographed that glowed the most was this marsupial mole that lives underground and it's covered in this whitish golden fur. Um, It was glowing the most and yet it's blind and lives underground. So they they can't think of any... um, Reasonable um, reason for this biological, yeah, no function.
0: That's absolutely amazing. How did we not know this before? Like, this is, this, it, it sounds like an April Fool's prank. That's amazing.
1: Well, I guess we didn't know it because no one bothered to shine UV on animals and look at them through a crime scene camera. Um, it's just these these uh, scientists got an notion to do that and rent out the museum for the night. And um, luckily they did because uh, it is it is um, a nice way of looking at these animals in a, a new light.
0: If you're listening at home and you have any idea why um, UV might be useful as an evolutionary trait to be able to glow in the dark, um Do let us know. Uh, Our next story, Oren, has to do with bedtime stories.
2: Yes. So this is, uh, this was carried out by a research group at Loughborough University in the mathematics department led by um, Jane Spiller and Camilla Gilmore. And it's about doing maths before bedtime. So I I couldn't resist and I, I pitched this idea to our two older girls at home, Lil and Meg, who are both learning maths at the moment. And I asked them would they like to do multiplication tables at night instead of a bedtime story. And unfortunately, I was given a summary judgment of being even less cool than they had already assumed. But that is the summary here. So this group took a group of adults, uh, 77 adults, and they split them into groups learning maths in the daytime and learning maths uh, before bed, basically. And they controlled it. They had sort of timed activities, untimed activities, and they controlled for initial levels of proficiency in maths and all of that. But they basically found that if you learn some maths before bedtime, multiplication tables and the like, you're more likely to remember it the next day or at a a later time. Now, the reason for this, it's probably not anything specific that's happening when you sleep but more likely what isn't happening as in nothing much else is happening when you're asleep so when you're asleep so your brain can process and mull over what it has kind of most recently been exposed to in peace so they conclude you know that this might have some educational benefits and so on like that but it still seems that at least for me it won't help much in the in the cool dad stakes but it's an interesting finding nonetheless
0: what about uh, that 60s trend of like playing tapes to People when they were asleep to try and help them quit smoking. I mean, is there any any idea that that we might be able to learn mathematics while we sleep?
2: It's a good question. Good question. That, that's subliminal subliminal messaging, isn't it? Subliminal messaging. Uh, I'm not yeah. sure on that one. I think though that for for information to be processed, for complex information to be processed, you need to be awake. I think. I'm not sure though. Maybe we could uh, maybe we could ask them to do a second study on that. That's a good point.
0: Laura, our final story has to do with elephants.
1: Yeah, so um, this story is about entrepreneurial elephants and um, no, we're not going to see elephants going around and setting up their own business anytime soon, but we did find this unique um, characteristic that is associated with entrepreneurs, which is innovation and the ability of elephants to um, display innovation. Um, So this is research coming out of an elephant sanctuary in Thailand and it's in association with New York City University. And what they did was, um, because this is a, a protected area, no tourists are allowed in this elephant sanctuary, they set up some remote viewing cameras And they made these custom made boxes that had three compartments and each compartment contained some jackfruit, which is apparently what um, elephants like to eat. And there were three different doors on these compartments, um, which the uh, researchers were using as a way of um, setting a puzzle for the elephants to try and open. The three doors were one was push, one was pull and one was a sliding door. So humans like have hassle trying to operate push-pull doors. So um, this would be a really good way to test if elephants were able to do this with their trunks and if they were able to use um, that kind of higher processing um, ability to figure out these puzzles to get to the food inside. So what they found was there are 200 elephants in this sanctuary um, altogether living there and um, only 77 actually had the curiosity to go up and look at the boxes in the first place and of the 77 who went up and had a look, 44 um, were curious enough to actually try and figure out the puzzles. They they stuck in their trunks, tried to open up the doors. And of that 44, only 11 were able to open up one door. Um, eight were able to open up two doors and five elephants were able to open up three doors. So the main um, take-home message from this study was that there's huge variation in the ability um, to solve problems like this by elephants. So different elephants have different individual abilities or capabilities in um, innovation. Um, and the researchers also, they had a p- hypothesized beforehand that maybe there would be sex differences or age differences in the elephant's ability to solve these problems. But um, no difference was found. So they had thought that maybe um, the female elephants who might be approaching the boxes with their young calves might be less um, less likely to investigate due to, you know, that there could be a potential danger there for their young. But that that wasn't the case. The female elephants were as inquisitive and also able to solve the problems just as much as the male elephants. And there was no difference between younger and older elephants either. And um, the reason for this research in the first place was because even though this is a a protected sanctuary um, for the elephants, they they. Keep actually escaping and going next door into the nearby human villages and raiding their crops, so the humans huh. um don 't really like this obviously, and they can 't afford to lose any of their crops and um, it's causing conflict and you know we, we don 't want that when when we are trying to save these species and keep them in a, a safe um, sanctuary um, we want to keep this um, as conflict conflict free as possible between the humans and the elephants and so um the, the researchers were hoping that their findings would help set up some kind of measures that the elephants wouldn't be able to crack and uh, would stop stealing the humans' food.
0: That's ridiculous, absolutely nonsense. If you ask me, I mean, it, it, you know, animals can do this, elephants can do that, crows can do this. I'm not. I, mean, I, I was impressed with this maybe ten years ago. i now just assume elephants could do whatever they want. They just some of them are just lazy. Really interesting story, though. Um, Laura Healy and Oren Kennedy, thanks very much for joining us. Is it a planet? Is it a star? Or is it something else? Astronomers have been puzzled this week by the discovery of a type of space object that really shouldn't exist. They're called jumbos. Mark McCochran is ESA Senior Advisor for Science and Exploration at the European Space Agency. He's also a co-author of a new paper on jumbos. He joins me now. Welcome to the program, Mark. Um, This is an interesting one, and there seems to be a bit of excitement about it. Before we talk about jumbos, maybe you might um, explain how planets and stars come into existence so that we can explain why jumbos are a little bit strange.
3: Yeah, I think it's important that people you know, get a bit of a bigger picture here before we kind of go down to the details. But thank you for having me back, by the way. It's been a long time since mm. uh, the, the glorious Rosetta mission almost 10 years ago, as we were just yeah. discussing. So um, stars form out of gas and dust, giant clouds in our Milky Way, which you can see in the night sky. If, you, if, you, if you're in a nice dark location, you go out and you can see the Milky Way. You'll see the stars, the kind of the white milk, but you'll also see black patches in, in that, um, which break that, that milky... Um, uh, path up, and those are clouds of gas and dust, um, which are the, the leftovers from old generations of stars. And when that gas and dust collects together in, again, it can make new stars. So that material collapses down under gravity, and it has to cool down as it does that, because there's a lot of energy in those clouds, and to shrink down, you have to get rid of some energy. And we'll come back to why that's important a bit later on. But but in the end, they collapse down and they form lumps, and those lumps then become stars and you get a whole range of different kinds of sizes of stars. So our sun is quite an average star in fact. There are much bigger ones than the sun. Um, the giant stars might be 50 or even 100 times more massive than the sun. And they burn their fuel really quickly. They only live a few million years. So there's that kind of, you know, rock and roll thing, live fast, die young, which the massive stars do. You get down to our sun, which it can fuse hydrogen in its core and it can live we're going to live for about 10 billion years. We're about halfway through. We're middle-aged. Then you get down to smaller and smaller objects, which actually, because they're um, smaller, they have less mass, but they actually burn their fuel much less quickly, so they can live for much, much longer, hundreds of billions of years. But you reach a point when you're making objects like this, where there are things which can't they don't have enough mass, they don't have enough pressure in the center to fuse hydrogen. so um, those are objects we call brown dwarfs. they just they cool down forever, they never manage to get to a stable state, and at the bottom of those is where we come to the jumbos. Because in regions like the Orion Nebula, where we've been looking, we've been finding over years that there are objects which are so small, they're actually the mass of just four or five times the mass of Jupiter, a planet in our own solar system. And those things, um, we call them planetary mass objects because we don't know how they're made, Um, but we'll come back to that later on. So you you get a few big massive stars, quite a few stars like the sun. You get loads and loads of the tiny objects. And our big question with this whole study was, what's the smallest object you can form in the same way that you form stars?
0: Right. So um, beneath brown stars, that sort of new category. Yeah, exactly.
3: Well, those um, those have been known for a while because we we draw another line at about 13 times the mass of Jupiter, where brown dwarfs can actually can actually fuse deuterium, which is heavy hydrogen. They can do that for a few million years. But beneath that, you can never fuse anything. Um, and those we call planetary mass objects. And as I say, about 20 years ago, we started finding things which are about three or five times the mass of Jupiter, but we needed James Webb Space Telescope to look to smaller masses.
0: So these jumbos are interesting because they occupy that space, of course, where the, the physics, as we understand it, doesn't quite add up. Uh, can you talk to me a little bit about that? You know, that, that, the confusion as to how they can be the way they are?
3: Yeah, exactly. So as I said before, when clouds collapse down, they have to get rid of energy. They have to get rid of that heat. And when you look at the physics in detail, there's a point at which you get to very small objects, which are trying to cool down and trying to break apart to even smaller ones. It's this process we call fragmentation, things, you know, kind of falling into little pieces, a little bit like pouring milk into, you know, um, um, sour milk into a glass of hot water. And then it curdles into little pieces. It breaks up into smaller and smaller bits. The lumpiness Um, of space. Absolutely. Um, So there's a there's a piece of physics that says when you get down to objects which are seven times the mass of Jupiter, um, which is, in, interestingly, Jupiter is about 1,000th of the mass of the Sun. So if you put that as a kind of a decimal number, it's 0.007, and people will immediately understand why we've called that the James Bond mass for a long time. Mm-hmm. Um, so you get down to the James Bond mass of seven Jupiter masses, and things the physics says you can't cool down anymore. You can't actually get rid of that heat in a way to split apart and form three, two objects, which are three Jupiter masses, three and a half. So that piece of physics says you should never see anything less than seven Jupiter masses. Those we've already seen, so that's got people puzzled. But now we're seeing things with the James Webb Space Telescope, which are not just three, but one Jupiter mass, even 0.6 Jupiter masses. So the physics is completely blown away by that. How do you do that? And then on top of that, as you mentioned, it's even worse because we're seeing them in pairs. We're seeing them as binary objects. About ten percent of these very low mass objects are just in, in binaries, and there is no explanation for that at all. So, how does that
0: work um, when you when you look at something like this? You've got um, your understanding of space, observations that backs up theories, and you know you run the models. You try and figure it, match up what your computers are saying with what the real world is saying to come up with some sort of theory as to how things form. Yeah, and then and then this comes along, and it. <laughs> It makes you question your model uh, and a little bit of, of what you're seeing. Surely, I mean, when you when you get these images from James Webb, do you need then to 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 verify that your that the data coming in is correct, or 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 is it the model you think is is
3: at fault here? <laughs> yeah, no, it's a great question, and of course, it's a, a source of a little bit of you know creative tension in the academic world. You have you you might traditionally you'll have observers who go and look at things and then say this is what I've seen and then you'll have theoreticians who'll say well okay I thank you for your data now I'll go and figure it out of course theoreticians often make predictions as well and say you know this is what I predict you'll see um, one of the funniest stories when I was younger, and I'm not certainly not going to name names, was a, a theoretician who, when he looked at some of my observations—not these ones, but old ones—he said, "I'm sorry, your observations can't be right because they don't agree with my theory." Um, well, you know hmm. that—that's nice, but um, sorry, as an observer, of course, then the responsibility is on the other side. The responsibility is for us to be absolutely sure that what we're seeing is real. Yeah. And so, it, so in this case, one might say, "Well." You think these things are in Orion, are very faint, but maybe they're much further away. Maybe you're just seeing faint stars, normal objects poking through, but they're so far away that they look like the same brightness as these things that you might.
0: Wait, whoa, 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 whoa! What? Sorry, this is this is like a bombshell <laughs> for me, right? Because my understanding is that we that that couldn't happen. That we knew how far things were away. You're saying that that it could be like a. A Father Ted, um, a, a <laughs> Dougal sort of situation where, you know, the cows are far away or the cows are near. Like, uh, I, are you saying that it's possible that something that looks near could be further away? I thought
3: that was impossible. No, not at all. Not at all. I mean, in fact, we, we we do know the the distance to many many individual objects now. Our Gaia satellite, for example, has been up there since 2013 and and measuring the positions of about uh, two billion stars in our Milky Way. But our Milky Way has 200 billion objects in it, so we're only measuring one percent. Um, so many objects, you you sort of assume they're in a location. This is in the Orion Nebula. We know the distance to the Orion Nebula, so you say, well, okay, if it's in Orion, it's at that distance. Well. We can see past Orion. In fact, in our in our new images from James Webb, we actually see galaxies in the background. So those, of course, are way further away. So that's but how do you thinking. know they're not smaller? Uh, well, size is another thing. Everything's just a point source. Everything we don't actually we can't see the surface of any of these objects. Yeah. So what we can see, we can measure their brightness. And we can say, well, you know, if I held a candle up and it was, you know, one inch from my nose, it would be much brighter than all the stars out there. But, of course, intrinsically, it's much fainter. It's just a question of distance.
1: Mm.
3: So maybe some of these objects were actually further away and we were being fooled into thinking they were in Orion. But luckily, we have data from, from uh, JWST that shows that can't be the case. Because objects like these these jumbos, these planetary mass objects, they're quite cool. They're not They're not as cool as... Planets in our own solar system because they're very young. So they're still giving out heat. So, roughly speaking, these objects are around 750 degrees Celsius. So, that, you know, of course, you can't live there. They're they're warm, hot objects, but they're much cooler than normal stars. And because they're cooler than stars, they have um, in their spectrum, we can see water absorption steam. It's not liquid water, steam. And we see methane. Uh, And those traces in our data say they can't be normal stars further away. So that's the kind of check we have to make. Now, of course, we can go further. We're going to go and remeasure these objects now we've discovered them. In March next year, we'll be pointing JWST back in the same direction and taking an actual spectrum of each object instead of just looking at their individual colors in different filters. So there's almost more we can do
0: What about uh, triangulation? Is that possible from where we
3: are? Or is it just too far away to triangulate? no that's exactly how the Gaia satellite does it actually um, we can okay. triangulate um, but it, you need to be at a certain level of brightness and these individual objects are way too faint for the Gaia right. satellite okay. to see Okay. And, and the interesting thing so people understand how triangulation works you know you kind of stand in one place look at how far something is away relative to back objects in the background and then you move to a different place and nearby things like putting your finger in front of your face and blinking from one eye to the other um, if you look at if you hold your finger close the, the finger moves a lot if you put further away, it moves less when you blink your eyes. With Gaia, we actually do that by looking every six months. We look from two sides of the solar system as, as Gaia orbits around the sun. So we use the entire solar system as the distance we measure the triangulation over. Wow. But again, these objects, these particular objects are way too faint for that. So we have to infer their distances from, let's call them indirect parameters. So what we've done with these data is we say, well, let's, let's say we believe they're in Orion, we see steam and we see methane. Can we fit to the latest models of what objects at one million years old, which is very young um, for these kinds of things, can we fit the models? And the models fit perfectly in terms of what they should look like in the different brightnesses. So um,
0: when you publish something like this, is, it, um, is there a bit of a pylon from astronomers if you claim that you know there's something that we haven't seen before? Do astronomers then, do they get the knives out? Because there's definitely some um, some disciplines like anthropology, for example, where anything you print, uh, you could be subject to ridicule and possibly death threats. In, in astronomy, um, when, when you say, look, I think we've got something new here, but I'm not quite sure because this is, hasn't been peer reviewed just yet, I think. That's correct. Um, yeah. uh, what, what's, what's
3: your gut on this? Well, you know, of course, we talked about the difference between observers and theoreticians. Uh, theoreticians can, you know, for them, in fact, if they're not wrong often, they're not they're not being creative enough, right? So they can be wrong nine times out of ten. Um, observers, you get it wrong once, then, yeah, maybe you'll get away with it. But, you know, if you keep getting it wrong by publishing shoddy work, then, of course, you'll be, you know, be uh, exercised Um now, so we've we've done everything we can to check this. The reason it hasn't been peer-reviewed yet is that all the data, we, we, we only had exclusive access for a year. Um, and it was a massive job because these are huge data sets we're working with. So we just got to the end. We, we knew this result was here, and we want to get it out before anybody else found it. So, of course, we now need to wait for peer review. Um, I wouldn't... Uh, it, from the theoreticians, everybody's been very excited um, because, you know, it, it gives them something to do, right? They've got to now yeah. come up with a new model, a new simulation, a new a new way of uh, physics, which is great. It's what I love for for to have happen. Um, the exoplanet people, the people who study planets going around, around other stars, they're really excited as well because not only did we find the jumbos, these binaries, but they sh- all of their predictions – say these things just shouldn't exist. Mm. There should, there should be, all, the, all the data we have from other star-forming regions says there should be no binaries at masses like this. There should, there should never be binaries. And yet we see them. So, so j- it,
0: just actually just to clarify for listeners at home, we're talking about two Jupiter-sized-ish um, things that yep. don't orbit a star. And that's, and that's the really unusual thing, right? They're not in the orbit of a star as far as you can see. They're sort of floating out there, but they're
3: connected to each other. Yeah, so they're not super close together. They're roughly, so the, we use a, um, a scale length in astronomy called the astronomical unit. That's the distance from the Earth to the sun, 150 million kilometers. So we often measure things in that unit. And these are about 100 astronomical units apart. So this is roughly the width of our solar system, beyond Neptune out to the Kuiper Belt objects. So so they're quite far apart. So they're not kind of just whizzing around each other. And, and their orbits are you know, many thousands of years long. but but they're close enough to each other, gravity is holding them together. So they are in pairs, but they, no, they have nothing in between them. There's no star in the middle, as you say. Mm. And that's the kind of one of the big questions now, is how did they actually form? Um, one group of theories would say if you can make objects cool down, which they're struggling to do, and break apart into smaller things um can you form you know can can you even form these small objects in the first place and even then how do you form binaries out of clouds like that at these masses the other possibility is that they formed as actual planets orbiting around stars and in orion the in this nebula the stars are so close to each other they actually are buzzing around and they they go rip past each other, you know, relatively often. I mean, on timescales of hundreds of thousands of years. And when they do that, the gravity can rip some planets out of one solar system and be free-floating. So that has always been the other model for these things, the single ones. They oh, formed right. as individuals, as planets, and got kicked out. Our solar system probably had more planets in when it was young. People, you know, people tend to think you know our solar system has always been the way it is absolutely not the planets have moved in, around enormously in their in where they from where they formed to where they are today and we probably had more planets in the in the deep past and they got thrown out some got swallowed up is, is there by the any phone.
0: evidence of that
3: yeah because the the way our solar system is arranged with the big planets further out it doesn't really make sense in in the way that you understand the temperatures and densities in in the in the disks which make planets around stars i mean we see those in orion as well we see new solar systems being born in our data and so you have models for that and that says no there must have been some complete rearrangement of the planets um, so it's do, you a base- mean, do you mean that
0: from from the sun it should mm. be dense and going to less dense as uh, in terms of the materials of the in a planets? Sense, yeah. yeah,
3: yeah. You you okay. need you needed to have the big you know the gas the gas giants further in to collect all the gas, because they're made of basically the same stuff the sun is, whereas our planets are mostly made of dust turned into rock. Um, So there's this thing called the grand tack model, which borrows from sailing, you know, this idea that at some point, one of the planets got unstable, went on a slightly wonky orbit, and then everything rearranged, because gravity moved things around a lot. So this idea of ejected planets was cool, and that was kind of, that would be the immediate answer to these one Jupiter mass objects, that they didn't form like stars, they formed like planets. So sometimes the word rogue planet is used for these. Mm. But the real, the real kicker now is how do, you form, how do you eject two things at once and they stay together as they moved out? Because it's quite a violent process, this ejection. And to, for two of them to stick together and hang out in space um, on their own you know, they, so, but it's, of course, it's possible that both models are working, that we're seeing some being formed out of clouds, single ones, and maybe the doubles are being formed another way. Or maybe, the, so at the moment, you know, all bets are off, right? Yeah. Nobody, this is the good thing. Nobody predicted them. Um, so yeah. we, uh, now uh, you, you went back to this knives out thing. You know there is this interesting. Of course, my email box is now completely full of people saying, "Ah, oh, well, if you cite my paper from 1856, you'll see that uh, I did. You know, I did. As, I didn't quite predict what you're seeing, but it's close enough that you need to reference my paper, which is right, good. I'm right, happy with right. this. That people are sending in what they done. <laughs> That's for. interesting. So it's not so much saying I think you're wrong. Although of course I did have somebody yesterday saying you need to waste your t- stop wasting your time on this. God created the universe. It's ineffable. We'll never know. And it's like all right thank you you know uh, thank you yeah. for your contribution um but yeah so it's, it's always interesting when you put a big result out like this and have people suddenly scratching their heads and thinking uh, what do we do now so but as an observer nothing makes me happier right it's not my mm-hmm. job to explain these things it's my job to say they're there well mark mccochran
0: uh, from the european space agency uh, talking about results from the jwst thank you very much for your time Now it's time to look back at some of your comments from last week's episode. And if you remember, we we found out that yogurt is the perfect cure to garlic breath. Uh, According to Laura Healy last week, someone says, what about tzatziki, uh, which is essentially Greek yogurt and garlic dip? Well, they would cancel each other out like matter and antimatter, Frida, um, I would imagine. Um, But you could do a a test and let us know how you get on. I'm not really keen on the the experimental side of this, um, this idea where you have to go around smelling people's garlic breath. Maybe there's some sort of sensor you could use to, to do that job rather than getting humans to do it. We also talked about um, brain size and different shapes and so on and what affected those. Uh, one person says, when talking about the variabilities in the human brain and the different sizes, I wonder, is there a perfect shape and structure to the brain? I imagine we're not very far from trying to engineer one. Um, so I guess you're talking about sort of the idea of a reference brain and... I, I think much like the human genome it's very difficult to call anything perfect because there are differences between all brains and saying one brain is perfect um really begs the question what do you mean by perfect and so I suppose if we're talking about um, low pathology, high cognition you know age as well and so on there's probably a number of different brains that fit that shape so we probably have an idea of what hel- a healthy brain should look like. But narrowing it down to one specific brain and saying that's what we want, I don't think that would work both for human diversity, um, but also um, because the, the question is framed wrong, I think. Um, we were also speaking uh, to Coco Crumb, who is a mathematician and author of Optimal Illusions, The False Promise of Optimization, about all of the effort we're putting into to make things as perfect as possible, You know, whether it's your morning routine or uh, the time you spend with your kids or your E- email inbox, uh, it's all focused on maximum efficiency. Uh, and someone has uh, emailed in, uh, it's Lorraine from Nice. She says, um, I have to say, I'm absolutely exhausted looking at optimization apps and YouTubers like Ali Abdal. There comes a point when we just need to crack on with things and live our lives. I feel that there's a narrative out there that we need to have every aspect of our lives dialed in with ma- apps, mindful exercises, the perfect amount of sleep, monitoring devices on our wrists and our phones. And that we'll all have the passive income we'll need, no wrinkles, perfectly balanced brain chemistry and a natural immunity to all diseases and live forever. It's just not going to happen. It's hard to optimise your life when you're constantly feeling like you always have to optimise your life. It never stops. That's a good point. Uh, David says, isn't optimization just another way for tech companies to make us feel the need to buy their latest brainwave? It's not only a trap money-wise, but emotionally and psycholo- psychologically. You know, the promise of technology is that they would um, take work from us and give us time of leisure, make things uh, easier. I think they probably, um, they probably can claim that technology has made us richer, um, but I think we're time poor, would that be fair to say? I mean, technology certainly hasn't led to us working less in our lives, I would say. Colman Sandyford says uh, Google Calendar is a great way of optimizing my viewing of the Rugby World Cup. I was looking for optimization techniques. Ironically, um, yes, I've done the same. I've synced the Rugby World Cup calendar to the Google Calendar, uh, not to miss games. I'm very clever. And another person says, myself and my girlfriend recently watched the Black Mirror episode White Christmas. I know we're slow to the party. They say. It struck me what a horrid, unthinking and frankly lazy existence that lady ended up living with her digital clone, optimizing her every part of her life. Honestly, who wants to live their life that way? I I mean, I I kind of get it in a way like I'm a hugely efficiency focused person and I, I use up all of my time. As, as best as I can. I know exactly how long it'll take for me to go and collect the kids now, seven minutes. I have to allow for, you know, traffic or a red light or whatever. I, I do work out the maths of things to get the most out of my life quite a lot. It's not a, a, a tech optimization, but I do think of what can I fit into that 50 minutes. It is exhausting. I am exhausted. I feel like I'm constantly thinking about things, but I actually don't know how to turn that off. And if I find myself trying to relax, unless I've got a really good book or a film or I'm playing sports, I find it very difficult to turn off that constant creativity and drive to to do. Uh, even if I'm sitting in a room with someone, I'll be tidying while talking to them. I, I, and I, 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 it is exhausting, but I don't know if I can turn it off. So I don't know, may, maybe I'm one foot in that camp. Thanks for your comments. Um, you can email us about this week's episode on scienceatnewstalk.com. You can also tweet us. We're at Newstalk Science. We'll chat about it next week. Thanks to Marisa Sullivan, Simon Keane, John Byrne, Huida Silva on sand. We'll be back with more Future Proof in your podcast feed on Tuesday. In the meantime, stay curious. Future Proof with Jonathan McRae.
1: Proudly supported by Science Foundation Ireland.
0: Sunday morning at 10 on News Talk.